everybody, take out your Bibles, open them up to Ruth chapter 2. We're in a series of messages called the Book of Ruth. We're looking at this little small book in the Old Testament right after the book of Judges. I told you how to find it a couple of weeks ago. Joshua judges Ruth. We don't know why he judges her, but he does. And uh, take out your bulletins in the bulletin. Your bulletin looks like this. In the bulletin is an outline that you can fill in the blanks. Follow along with us. Take notes in during this message. And we're going to get into Ruth chapter 2. The title of the message is Moving from Famine to Fullness. Moving from Famine to Fullness. And what we see is a theme of the book of Ruth is that exact thing. There is a movement from want to plenty. There's a movement from not enough to more than enough. There's a movement from famine to fullness. And I really have on my heart for you in this message a desire for you to experience the fullness of God. Uh, you might be experiencing famine in your life. And maybe not in the in the physical sense, like you're not, you're not hungry, but there's other areas where you're just, you're experiencing a famine, a drought, maybe in your workplace, and you're not seeing the fullness of God there. Maybe in your relationship, you're not seeing the fullness of God. You feel lonely and isolated. Uh, may, maybe in your finances, you're just seeing a, a famine in your life. And I want to show you how Ruth makes this move from famine to fullness, because she starts Ruth chapter 2 totally famished. She ends Ruth chapter 2 completely filled up. And what made the difference? The person of Boaz. And we're going to look at how this applies to us here 2,800 some odd years later. Actually, 3,000 years later. So stand with me, would you? And uh, we're going to read from Ruth chapter 2, picking up where we left off. And we're going to go to the Lord's table after this service today. And here's where, where we're going to pick up from in Ruth chapter 2, verse 14. So if you get your Bibles, verse 14 of Ruth chapter 2, here's what it says. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over. She had a doggy bag. Amen, somebody. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Also pull some from the bundles for her, leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, and she took it up, went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out uh, and gave her what food she had left over. Like, here's a little doggy bag from Boaz's table. And it says this, And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And Ruth is like, Well, the man who I worked with, I guess his name, I think it was Boaz. She's like, Whoa, Noah, Naomi said to her daughter, May he be blessed of the Lord, who is, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man, Boaz, he's also a close relative, one of our redeemers. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I ask that these next few moments are sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we hear your voice. May the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And as we pray all the time, Father, help us to see Jesus. In his name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you. Have a seat. So we've talked about Naomi in this, chap in this book. We've talked about Ruth in this book. And today we're going to talk about Boaz. And the question I have you is, who is 
Boaz. Who is this guy? And how does what he um, brings to this story relate to us? It's on your notes there. And I want to look at the last verse of chapter 1 again just to remind you of a couple of facts about Boaz so we can know who Boaz is for us. It says, and they came to Bethlehem. That sounds familiar, right? At the beginning of barley harvest, and Naomi had a close relative of her husband's, a worthy, somebody say worthy, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. Who is Boaz? Well, he's from Bethlehem. He's a relative. And he's a worthy man. The word worthy in Hebrew is a very rich, deep, thick word. It's filled with nuance. It can be translated worthy. It can be translated noble. It can be translated prominent. It can be translated a man of substance. A man of significance. A man above all other men. And so my question for you is, who else do we know? Who's from Bethlehem? Who else do we know who is a man of substance and character and worthy, uh, to be called worthy? Who else do we know who's a close relative of all of ours because he, keep, he became a man? Who is Boaz? Who is our true and better Boaz? I want you to see this. Boaz is a picture of Jesus Christ. If you're taking notes, you can write that down in the blanks there. Who is Boaz? Boaz is a man, a picture of Jesus. And when you see Boaz, I want you to see Jesus. Because everything he does in this chapter for Ruth, I want you to know Jesus is going to do for you. If you've been here in any amount of time at Water Church, you know this, that I always tell you this. I believe the Bible is about Jesus. The Bible is not a rule book. The Bible is not a manual for living. The Bible is not a blueprint. The Bible is a story. It's a story about Jesus, the true man who came to save us from our sinful condition. And every story of the Old Testament is really a shadow of the true story fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is a, uh, the true and better Adam what does Adam do? He follows his wife into sin. And then when he's caught, he blames her and shames her. And Jesus is our true and better Adam who doesn't follow us into sin. He leads us out of sin. And instead of blaming and shaming us, he takes our blame and our shame and dies for us on behalf of our sins so that we can be resurrected to new life in him. Jesus is our true and better Joseph who was betrayed by his brothers and cast into a pit and rises again up to the third, second highest place in all of the land and provides grain and redeems his brothers and forgives them of their sins and prospers them in the land. Jesus is our better, true and better Joseph. Jesus is our true and better Moses who leads us out of Egypt and slavery and brings us through the Red Sea in baptism and provides us a place to live in the promises of God. Jesus is our true and better David who took down our true Goliath and conquered hell and death in the grave at the cross 2,000 years ago and provides victory for all who follow him into the valley and walk with him in peace and in truth and in righteousness. Jesus is our true and better Daniel who survived the pit with the lions and did not let death touch him but rose again on the third day. I want to tell you today, if you follow Jesus, it's going to go well with you. He's our true and better Savior for our sins. I'm ready to preach this morning. Hallelujah, Jesus. When you read the Old Testament stories, you've got to see that Jesus is on every single page telling you what he's like 
showing you who he really is. Because I got a feeling some of you have heard about him, but you haven't really met him. Who is Boaz? He's our true and better Jesus. He's our true and better redeemer. Who is Jesus? He's our true and better Boaz. Our true and better redeemer. Amen. And it says this in verse 13. She said to him, I found favor in your eyes. I found grace. That's what favor is in the Old Testament, grace. What do we get from Jesus? We get grace. So I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me. That's what Jesus does for you. And spoken kindly. And the word here, spoken kindly in Hebrew, also a very rich meaning word. It actually could be translated, you have spoken on my heart. And I want to say this. So many of you, you need to hear it. There's a lot of people who are speaking to your stomachs. Many of the voices of our world today speak to our stomachs, our desires, our flesh. Only Jesus can speak to our hearts. And you know this and I know this. You need a lot more people speaking to your heart than speaking to your stomach. Every advertisement out there, to the heart, to the stomach, to the stomach, to the stomach. And Jesus comes and he speaks on our hearts. And every good thing that happens to Ruth in chapter 2 happens because, hear this, she listens to Boaz and does what he says. So in this series, we've been looking at the little things that loom large over the long haul in our lives. And week one, loyalty. Week two, take initiative, work diligently, remain grateful. Week three, today, little thing that looms large over the long haul, hear and obey his voice. Because Ruth moves from famine to fullness by listening and doing what Boaz says. And you will move from famine in whatever famine of your life that you're experiencing right now. You will move from famine to fullness if you listen to and obey the voice of Jesus. Now there are three specific things that Boaz says to Ruth in this chapter that I believe Jesus wants to say to you today. And it helps us experience the fullness of God. Three things. Number one, we experience the fullness of God when we Fill in the blanks. Stay in his field. That's what Boaz says to Ruth. Stay in my field. Somebody say, stay in his field. Look at what Boaz says to Ruth. Verse 8, now listen, my daughter, do not go. Glean in another field. Don't leave this field. Stay in this field. Stay in my field. Keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field. In other words, focus on the field. Now, now what you've got to understand about Boaz Remember, he's from Bethlehem. And the book of Ruth opens with a famine where? The famine is in Bethlehem. Naomi and her husband leave town because of the famine. Boaz does not. Boaz stays in Bethlehem. And in spite of the famine, Boaz prospers and becomes rich. What you got to see about Boaz is Boaz knows how to cause his field to prosper no matter what famine comes his way. And you got to know this for your life. Jesus is our true and better Boaz who knows how to cause us to prosper no matter what famine might come our way. You might have come into this building in a famine of love. Jesus knows how to bring you through that famine of love and cause you to prosper. You might be in a famine of business, and Jesus can cause the business to start to prosper as you stay in his field. You might have come lonely and isolated from everybody in your life, and God can bring you through that famine season and bring you to abundance because our God knows how to prosper his people no matter what his people might face. My Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, 
It says we know that for those who love God, all things, somebody say all things. All things work together for what? For good for those who are called according to his purpose. Jesus knows how to bring you through whatever trial, tribulation, or trouble the enemy has thrown your way. Stay in his field. Now, I know what some of you are saying right now. You're saying, what the heck does that mean? Stay in his field. Well, you need to know what the field of God is. And the field of God, if you're taking notes, I want you to write it down. The field of God is the church of God. See, all the Old Testament stories have New Testament parallels. And the field of Boaz is a figure. It represents the church. Remember when Jesus shares uh, parables about the kingdom, most of them are about farming. He, he, when he's saying, okay, here's what the kingdom of God looks like. A farmer goes out to sow seed. There's wheat that grow among the tares. Harvest time comes and the angels come and they gather up God's people. And they bring them into his barn. See, what you need to understand is the field of God is the church. The church that bears the name of Jesus. I'll prove to you from another passage of scripture. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.9 says this, for we are God's fellow workers. And you, Paul says to the Corinthians, the church in Corinth in the first century. And you are God's, say it, field. You are, you, Waters Church, are the field of God. Now, I want you to understand how powerful this illustration is. Why this is so, why this is so key. I was raised on a gentleman's farm. A gentleman's farm is where the guy has a real job and then he farms on the side. And I saw this firsthand. And here's what I know. I'm not a very good gardener. My wife will tell you I've killed everything she's planted. <laughs> but God is a good, God is a good part gardener. And here's what I know about God's field. It doesn't matter what gets planted, what the, what, it doesn't matter what it looks like when it gets planted in the field because it's going to come out of the field totally different. Are you hearing what I'm saying? It doesn't matter how you come into God's field. It doesn't matter what issue you came with today. It doesn't matter what sin you committed last week. It doesn't matter how you look, what people thought of you, what you thought of you, because it doesn't matter how a seed goes into the field. The seed goes into the field one way. It comes out another way, filled with prosperity, growing and flourishing, and providing more seeds for future generations. If you come into the church of Jesus, I want you to hear me say it. I don't care how you came in here. It's come as you are, not come as you should be. Let God do a miracle in your life, and and turn your seed into a source of joy for the people. Now, you got to know this is happening at Water Shirts like all the time. And I get the reports of this stuff, and I was so blown away this week. Somebody saw me at lunch out around town here, came up to me, said, Pastor, I got to thank you in the church. I can't tell you how much God has done for me. And she proceeded to tell me her marriage separated. Her child depressed, situations just hammering her, life just hammering down on her. She said a couple, of, about eight months ago I started coming. There was a message on marriage. I left that message, I said, I got to start praying for my husband. I started praying for him. Wouldn't you know he starts coming with her. They, he gets saved, she gets saved, she gets baptized. They bring their child who is cutting herself, who is clinically depressed. A couple weeks ago I talked about suicide depression. The light of the gospel shines on that child's heart. She gives her life to Jesus. The mother says to me, 
The mother says to me, I have seen God turn my marriage around. He, my, my husband's getting baptized soon. My daughter's getting baptized soon. And I have seen my daughter smile for the first time in 12 months. That's the power of planting yourself in the field of God. Because it doesn't matter how you come in. You're going to leave different. You may have came, come in depressed. You can leave with the joy of the Lord in your life. You may have come in sick. That's why we have prayer at the end of our services, so that you can come down here and get healed. In Jesus' name, we have a God who can do all things, and he does good for his people. So you got to know this. Jesus built his church to build people. Jesus built his church to build people. He didn't build his church to build buildings. It's not about the buildings. And he didn't build his church to build names and celebrities. The church is his vehicle through which he blesses the world. Now, let me say this about uh, Boaz's field and by implication Jesus' field. Uh, his field, if you're taking notes, is both successful and satisfying. How many know we have seen this as an American culture, more probably than any other culture, that you can be entirely successful and totally unsatisfied? How many celebrities do we have to see kill themselves before we start to wake up to the fact that success has the opportunity to be there and not filling? See, Boaz's field is successful for Ruth and satisfying. Tim Keller, my favorite pastor in New York City, he's, he's a pastor, and he, and he has a lot of people who work with celebrities in New York City at his church, and they tell him the story, and they talk about how these people are still so depressed. And, and he says it like this. He says, there's something that people who have arrived at the top of their game, the top of the ladder, if you will, of cultural success, it's, there's something that these people have experienced that we don't experience, and it horrifies them. This is why they kill themselves. Because they realize that the human heart is such a deep well, you can fill it with a billion dollars and it still feels empty. The human heart is so deep, you can fill it with a million followers and fans and it still feels empty. Friends, there's only one thing that can fill the human heart. And that's the only being that's big enough to fill the human heart and that's God himself. Your heart was made for fullness in him. The Bible says he fills all things in every way, and he fills your heart. I would like to say this, too. Like, every search for satisfaction in our lives outside of God is really just a twisted alternative to the true search for God. He wants you to be successful, yeah, but he wants you to be satisfied because you find success in his plan for you and his purpose for you. And you know that whether it's success or stagnation or whatever season you're in, you know you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. And, and so we, we, we find not just success, but, but satisfaction. There's a theologian in the last century named Bruce Marshall. He was a Scottish theologian. He wrote a book called The World of Flesh and Father Smith. The World of Flesh and Father Smith. And it's about this Irish, I'm sorry, this Scottish priest. Uh, very well known, very respected in Scotland. It's actually a fictional story, but he talks about this guy's uh, experiences with the world of flesh and himself. One night, Father Smith is walking down the streets of Scotland, and he sees a scantily clad prostitute, and she yells out to him. She says, ah, oh, Father, I don't imagine you get many people interested in your line of work nowadays that science has disproved religion. And he says, oh, you'd be surprised. 
She goes, well, you know, I'd always wanted to talk to a Catholic priest, but not many of them show up at my kind of parties. And he says, well, I, I, got, I got an idea. How about you follow me, walk with me to my next appointment, and you can ask me all the questions you want. So she does. And she peppers him with question after question after question, why she doesn't believe in God, why he, she thinks it's all foolish. And she says, I got one more question for you. Father, I don't understand how you Catholic priests, how can you do without this? And he says, he says, well, I've found that the female body is rarely as perfect as it seems on the outside. And even if it is, eventually it gets old and it sags and it droops. And then he says, even the contemplation of the female body is a far cry from the fullness I get from walking with God as his friend. And she says, oh, that's full of, that's just nuts. I think that religion is just a substitute for sex. He says, no, you got it backwards. Sex is a cheap substitute for the fullness you find in faith in God. And he says, I actually believe that every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is unconsciously searching for God. What is all of our quest in life, all of our searching, all of our, all of our going after, but just another alternative to our true quest that satisfies us in God himself? What do we seek in being known by, by people, fame, fortune, followers, whatever? We want to be known. But listen, when you're known by God, it doesn't matter who knows you. What do we seek in money and, 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 and success? We seek safety and security. And, and if I have a better bank account and a higher balance sheet, then I'll, I'll feel safe and secure. But when you know you're planted in the hand of the living God and no man can pluck you out and he's got his eyes on you and you're his sheep and he calls you out by name and he knows you from the foundations of the earth, what else do you need in your life to make you feel secure? You're secure in the beloved of God. All these other searches our twisted searches for our true need to be satisfied in God. Number two, if you're taking notes, we experience the fullness of God when we sit at his table. When we sit at his table, at mealtime he said to her, the Bible says, verse 14, at mealtime he said to her, come and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine vinegar. Let's talk about this, because why is this in the story? Do we really need to know that he told her to dip the bread in the wine? And uh, I, I thought about this. The fact of the matter is, is that you and I go to restaurants, we all go to restaurants, and how many know Americans, um, we will recommend a restaurant based on what they do with the bread. <laughs> yes? You know this. Oh, you gotta go to this restaurant. The food stinks, but when they bring the bread, there's oil and Parmesan cheese. <laughs> it's like we will go to a restaurant based on this. And I found out, I realized this, we don't actually like bread. We like the things we can put on bread. How many of you are like me? You would drink butter if social protocol would allow it. I'd drink marinara sauce, baby. That stuff is like heaven. The nectar of the gods, marinara. <laughs> We don't like bread. We like what we can put on the bread. And here's what you need to see about Boaz. He doesn't just want her to eat. He wants it to be flavorful. I don't want you just to eat. I want you to enjoy. God doesn't want you just to come to church. He wants you to enjoy what he's got to give you. He wants to add spice and flavor to your life. He's, he's, he cares about you. And, and, and this is what you need to know about the, 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 the table of God. Okay, so if you're taking notes, fill in the blank. The table of God is the word of God. 
So you come to the church, you come to the table, and you eat up his word. The table of God is the word of God. Jeremiah 15, 16 says, when I discovered your words, I devoured them. They are my joy and my heart's delight. That's why you come here to hear from God. I am under no illusions that you come to hear from me. The only reason why you like to hear from me at all is because I share with you what God has to say. A recent Gallup survey of Americans in March of this year polled church attenders. Why do you go to church? The number one factor for why they go to church is to hear God's word. Hear God's word. In fact, here's how the statistics bore out in that poll. 76% said they want to find a church that teaches the Bible. Isn't that great? And only 38% wanted a church with good music. Sorry, worship team. <laughs> but the truth is, Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Isn't it amazing? 2,000 years later, we still just want to hear what this book has to say. This is why people come to church. So people on the outside of our church, they always do this on Facebook or on our, our, our social media sites. They say, oh, I know that kind of church. Because they, they see the lights, they see the smoke, they see the band, they see the drums. They say, I know that kind of church. I know that they're compromisers, watered-down messages. They just want to entertain, tickle ears, tell people what they want to hear. How many know if you were here last week, that's not what I do? Hallelujah. We tell you what God says. That's what builds the church. Everything God does, he does through his word. I got nothing else to share with you except what God has put down in this book. And if you feed on it, it'll add flavor to your life, I'm telling you. Isn't it amazing how we always think that God's boring and Satan has all the fun? And they actually, the reality is, it's the opposite. Satan's boring. Satan's a dud. God has the flavor. He created all things. He made all the different kinds of birds and all the different kinds of animals and all the different kinds of beasts of the field and the, and the fish of the sea. He's the one who scattered the stars into the universe. How? Through his word. He's the one who brings flavor, flavor into your life. So that when you eat on his word, you leave here. I was glad that I got myself to the house of God. I needed to hear that today. It turns your life around. We feed at the table. Then it says this in verse 14, back again to the text. It says, she sat beside the reapers, and then he passed to her the roasted grain, and she ate, and she was satisfied, and she had some left over. She sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her the roasted grain. What is that saying? Why this detail of this dinner? Because here's what you need to see. Logistically, Boaz was close enough in the meal to hand her food. And I just thought about this. This is a strange woman. This is a foreigner. This is an outsider. And Boaz has a heart big enough for her. He wants to draw the outsider in and to be close to him. I love this about Jesus. He loves the outsider. This is why you should absolutely feel comfortable in a church that proclaims the name of Jesus. These people say, I could never go to church, that people would never accept me. Well, those people haven't heard about Jesus then. You need to be in a church that loves people who are far from God, loves people who are nothing like us, loves people who are foreigners and strange to us, because our Father is the one who sent Jesus to go after those who are far from him. The church is for outsiders. Not, it's, not a, it's not a habitat for a comfy insiders. And, and, and he passed to her the roasted grain, and she ate, and she was satisfied, and she had some left over. In other words, the, the text is kind of teaching us here, he just 
gave her tons of food. Tons of it. He wanted her blessed. And he ate with her. You know what I find if I read the Bible enough, and you'll find this too. If you read the Bible enough, you realize this. God loves to eat. <laughs> this, is, this is one thing that makes me just like God. Hallelujah. Anybody out there love to eat? I just love to eat. And I find something about the Bible. God is in the business of bringing people close to him so that they can eat together. How does the Bible open? It opens with a garden, right? A garden is the potential for what? Food, which is a potential for what? Eating. Hallelujah. That's how it was supposed to be in the beginning, just us eating with God all the time. Hallelujah. Breadsticks from heaven. We got a cheap substitute, to substitute in breadsticks from Olive Garden for now. But how many know they stole that recipe from the gates of heaven? That, those things are gold, baby. You stuff those things in your pocketbook after you're done, if you know what I'm talking about. Your wife's pocketbook. <laughs> God loves to eat with his people. Remember when Jesus is about to go to the cross at the Last Supper? He says to them in Luke chapter 22, verse 15, he says, look, I have been very eager to eat this Passover with you. I want to, I wanted to share a meal with you before I suffer. And then, and then after the, the cross and after the resurrection and the disciples are still like in no man's land spiritually. They don't know what's going on. They ran from him. They betrayed him. They walked away from him, walked out on him in his worst hour. Then he rises from the dead and they, they're like, they kind of hear it. They kind of believe it. They're not sure. In John chapter 21, they're still kind of like in no man's land spiritually. And they go back to fishing. Peter's like, I'm done with this. I'm going fishing. He goes back to fishing, and Jesus shows up on the shore after having been resurrected, and he calls out to him. He says, have you caught any fish? Peter's like, no, nah, we weren't working all night. He can't recognize that it's Jesus yet. We've been working all night. There's no fish. He goes, hey, toss your net on the other side. He's done this before. Toss your net on the other side. They toss the net on the other side of the boat. 153 fish come up in that net. They can barely haul it to shore. They finally realize, it's Jesus. And they come up to the shore. They're running all the way up to the shore, swimming themselves to the shore. And they come up, and it says this. When they got out on land, they saw charcoal fire and in the place and fish laid out on it and bread. And then a couple of verses later, Jesus says the very spiritual words. Verse 9 or verse 12, come and have breakfast. Come on, somebody need to write that verse down just for Bible memory verse right there. Come and, the Lord said, come and have breakfast. Hallelujah. He, he eats with them before he suffers. He eats with them in spite of their betrayal, in spite of their denial, in spite of their, you know, jumping ship on him. And he prepares food. Like, you would think, like, he'd be like, hey, I resurrected here. You cook me breakfast. <laughs> He's like, no. I want to serve you breakfast. I want you to eat well, and I want you to eat with me. And then even in Revelation chapter 3, the scathing rebuke upon the church of Laodicea. He says, oh, you're lukewarm. You're not hot. You're not cold. I wish you were one or the other. Otherwise, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. It's like a really scathing rebuke. But then he says, listen, look, I stand at the door and I knock. And if you hear my voice and you open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. From Genesis to Revelation, God has been saying, I want to eat with you. I want you to know me. Come on, that's, that's why we eat with people. We eat with people because we want to get to know them. That's why God wants to eat with his people. He wants to get to know you and you, you get to know him. Be in relationship with him. 
Verse 14, she ate and she was satisfied. She had some left over. And I want you to hear me say this. It's in your notes there. God is not out to get you. God is out to feed you. How many of you need to know that today? I, I, I don't know what kind of churches you've been to in the past. I don't know what you've heard about the Lord. I don't know what you've heard about the Bible. But I want you to know this book is God's invitation for you to come to the party. Lastly, and number three, we experience the fullness of God when we share his abundance. We share what we got. We experience his fullness. So God doesn't just bless you for you. He blesses you for others. You are to be a vehicle of his blessing that you receive from him. It passes through you and it blesses those you know. This is exactly what happens in Ruth chapter 2. Ruth works all day. She gets phenomenally blessed by Boaz. And then she takes it home and she shares it with Naomi. Bitter Naomi. Naomi, I got some food. You're not going to believe this. I even got a doggy bag with some Olive Garden breadsticks. Hallelujah. Verse 17. It says she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. What does that mean, ephah of barley? We have no reference point as modern day Americans, but it's about 60 pounds of barley. To give you some context, an ancient Babylonian soldier survived on two pounds of barley a day. She's got 30 days worth of food. One day of work, 30 days worth of food. That's called moving from famine to fullness. How? She listened to Boaz. She did what he said, and he blessed her. And she shares it, right? First off, it says this, that she took it up and went into the city. So how many know homegirls got some muscle? This is 60 pounds of barley she's carrying into the city. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She brought it out, gave it to her, and the leftovers, the doggy bag. And then Naomi said, verse 20, to her daughter-in-law, may be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi saw, said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And so now Naomi has moved from bitterness to joy. Because, because Ruth takes what Boaz has given her and shares it. You don't come to church just for you. You don't come to God just for you. He doesn't just fix your problems so you can be safe and secure until Jesus comes again. He fills you and then he sends you to people who need you. You go from this place to tell this community, to tell our world that there's goodness in Jesus. I got plenty to share. So if you're taking notes, the last thing I want you to write down is this. Abundance of God is the time, the talent, the treasure of his people. And I want to say this. you got to hear me. you got to hear me. Please pay attention one last thing. You don't get more from God until you start giving what he's given you. You want, to, you want more from God? you got to give it away. you got to give more of what God's given you to people around you. You want more money? The Bible says give money. Give and it shall be given to you. Pressed down, shaking together, running over, poured into your lap. You want more love? Love more people. You want more friends? Be more friendly. I don't know why nobody likes to be around me. I'm such a pleasant person. 
you, you want more of God, give God away. I'm telling you, this is the formula that God has laid out in his word, and it changes people's lives. One last story, and I'm done. We have a guy on staff, his father, getting old, getting up there in age, and somebody from our church decided, this guy, this father doesn't come to church here, about a year ago, decided, I'm going to reach out to this man, somebody else from this church. And uh, they did. They met with them, and they did errands with them, and they cared for them, and loved on them, and all that kind of stuff. Wouldn't you know, about four months in, this father comes to Christ. Not in the building. Out there. And, um, and he's got a heart issue. He's got to go for surgery. And he's, you know, got all that complication going on there. And, and, and people, because they love the person who's on staff with us, they love his father. So they just go. They visit him. They show him the love of Jesus. They pray for him. They care for him. People from this church, few people. So I finally show up after all the work's been done. <laughs> How many know you got a good church when the work's done before the pastor gets there? And I can see this guy's changed. There's joy on his face. And I'll never forget what he says. He says, Pastor Tim, those people at your church, they scare me. <laughs> they pay attention to me. They love me. You got doctors, you got business leaders, you got significant people in that church, they come over and they pay attention to me. Who am I? This has never happened to me in my entire life. And then he says something, I couldn't say it better. I'll say the exact quote, he says, it's not the building, it's those people. And I said, yeah. They're people who are filled up with God and they got plenty to share. That's what happens when you stay in his field, sit at his table, and share what he's given you.